Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful that you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where AA members share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. This is the 61st episode in the AA Recovery Interviews podcast series, and this show features my good friend Brent F., We actually recorded it in person immediately after a men's meeting that we both attend. It's in that meeting that I became reacquainted with Brent when he last got sober three years ago. I'd actually met him in 1996 when he first attempted to get sober. But like so many others, it took him several attempts to fully embrace AA and do the work necessary to achieve solid and contented sobriety. Those earlier attempts at sobriety included significant stints in AA over the years, during which time he went to meetings and got to know members of the fellowship. But his half-hearted efforts and a belief that he could still smoke pot thwarted his attempts at sustained or meaningful sobriety. He slipped time and time again. Though his marriage and job remained largely intact throughout the years, his slow descent into hopelessness and despair were marked indicators that he indeed needed help. It took two interventions, three treatment centers, multiple forays in AA, and a threatened divorce before Brent's desire to stay sober finally surfaced from within. It was at that point that he experienced the spiritual impetus to get sober for good and all, and that meant no more marijuana, prescription drugs, or alcohol. In the three years of Brent's current sobriety, he has worked the program as suggested while staying in the middle of the herd. He goes to daily meetings, studies the big book, works the 12 steps with his sponsor and sponsees, prays and does service work for his AA groups. And unlike earlier periods of faint sobriety, he ignores marijuana's beguilement as a harmless threat to his sobriety. It's an approach that has worked successfully for many people with whom Brent surrounds himself. I found significant similarities in Brent's story with my own, especially those pertaining to marijuana's persistent, baffling, and insidious allure. You may find such similarities as well. So, clear your schedule for the next hour of AA Recovery Interviews with my good friend and AA brother, Brent F. I'm an alcoholic. My name is Brent. Hi, Brent. Thanks for joining me today on the AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Thank you. What's really beautiful about this particular interview right now is that you and I just came out of one of my favorite meetings in the city of Houston. And you've been coming to this meeting for the past three years pretty regularly? Three years this time. Three years this time, yeah, because you used to come here before. Uh, uh, You've been sober three years, and what's Uh, your sobriety date? My sobriety date's 11-28 of 18. Uh So three years and a, a month or two. Wow, that's amazing. Seems like just yesterday you came in. It is. But it wasn't your first time in, though, right? No, it was not. Uh, in fact, the first time I met you was uh, in here probably in 1996. That's amazing. 96. So what was going on in your life in 1996 prior to getting to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous? Well, I was uh, on a good trajectory for my career. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife and I had... A year prior, had our first child. Mm-hmm. She had a job. She was working. I was working. Um, she worked for a design, architecture design mm-hmm. firm, and they worked some some late hours on deadlines. Um, and I had a responsibility one night to keep an eye on our one-year-old daughter. Uh, like usual, I had some drinks that evening. Um, that night, I decided to drink some whiskey, which sometimes affects me differently uh-huh. and um, uh, I had a few shots and thought it'd be a good idea to close my eyes for a minute or two mm. and the next thing I know I'm waking up to my wife shaking me wake up mm. and uh, she apparently had been I had put my daughter in the bed next to me yeah and basically passed out oh, um, and she had been calling for 30 minutes or so and I had not been answering, and, no, and she was, of course, freaked out. She came home, told me to wake up. She was certainly aggravated, and oh. I awoke. My daughter was crying next to me in the bed. 
And the first thing I said to her, because she told me I'd been calling for an hour. And the first thing I said to her was, uh, well, if you not let the phone ring so much, the baby probably wouldn't have woken up. <laughs> so, oh, my gosh. Um, it, it was clear to me uh, at that point that uh, my drinking was becoming a problem. Yeah. So I agreed to make an appointment with the doctor. And I remember him. He, he, um, he was a young guy. Apparently, his family were alcoholics. He was so hardcore. He's like, you're going you're gonna to die. Alcohol is going to kill you. And, you know, I was just, look, man, I, I just drink too much. I was still in the, hey, I'm a partier. This is what I do. This yeah. is what I've been doing for, you know, 20 plus years. Mm-hmm. And he was really serious and it did not like my laissez-faire attitude uh-huh. towards it. Sure. But, uh, he suggested I go to a meeting that night uh, and I being accommodating. I, I did yeah. uh, because my wife wanted me to, to really dig in. And I went to that meeting and there were about seven people that were really old. They're probably my age now, yeah. <laughs> you know, but yeah, right. they seemed really old. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they were old timers. And I can't remember the whole thing other than me thinking that these are not my people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, I get that. I'm, I'm not at all like them. You know, they had various degrees of waking up shaking, mm-hmm. drinking all day, um, significant consequences from drinking, and mm-hmm. none of that had happened to me at this point. Hmm. So I left there disenchanted uh, with the concept of an AA meeting, but mm-hmm. in, in order to get the heat off my back, I, I went to a meeting that next day. And when I walked in there, it was. It was a different mix of people because yeah. there were people my age uh, as well as old timers. And um, it turned out I recognized somebody I knew from school Oh wow! at that meeting. Uh-huh. And so I started going back to that. I asked that fellow to be my sponsor. And I think we got through maybe step three that I remember going through with him because um, I have where I have it written down in my first book. I mm-hmm. wrote step three to, sure. in handwriting, uh, which he had me do. And didn't do much past that that I recall. Were you just not earnest in your attempt, or were you thinking that you just do the bare minimum and get the heck out of there? What was your attitude? I didn't really get what was going on in a sense. Uh-huh. Um, I was really of the attitude: I drink too much. If I come to these meetings, you know, and hang out with these people, uh-huh. it, I'm not going to drink anymore. Um, I didn't understand the book when I read it at that time, and. You know, 30, 60, 90 days, I picked up chips, and um, I was staying sober. Huh. Didn't at all grasp the concept of higher power being involved other than we talk about him. And, and I did say my third step prayer from time to time. And, and I had some friends, other people I knew, mm-hmm. you know, from outside world. Mm-hmm. I'd met in there, and, you know, so there was a little camaraderie. And, and I made it to a year and three days. Hmm. And, and I went out and had a drink. That year period, I, that's when I must have met you for the first time. Yes, sir. Because I was going to some of the same meetings you were. I don't know that I remember what your attitude was like. I remember knowing you and knowing your name and everything, but uh, I didn't know just how serious you were about getting sober or any of that. Were you putting on airs or were you really trying to work the program? You know, I don't really remember my mindset back then. What I can tell you is I still didn't like the fact that I had to call myself an alcoholic. Didn't feel like an alcoholic Mm -hmm. because a lot of my stories were different. Um, I had not had any negative consequences other than the wrath of my wife. So I was in it to do it. I, I felt good about it, but I had, you know, what the book calls is the lurking notion. Sure. Yeah. You know, perhaps if I can, you know, make enough money, retire, whatever, then I can put the old carpet slippers on, <laughs> all right, and, and maybe I can drink and yeah. party like a gentleman. Wow. So I, I never was, I never got the first step, in a sense. I felt that my actions were keeping me sober. Yeah. All right, and my actions being going to meetings, getting a sponsor like y'all told me to, and that's it. There's that disconnect between on that first step, 
between admitting we were powerless and accepting that fact. And uh, that was my main problem when I was new in the program was I would admit the first three steps all day long if that's what it took to be a part of AA, but I didn't believe it. That is absolutely you know, where I was coming from. Yeah. And the unmanageability portion, I, I didn't even remember that part of the first step. Oh, yeah. Okay, because I was managing my life well. I just had this drinking problem. Yeah, well, you were a successful businessman at the time, so, weren't you? I was in, like I say, I was doing 36, maybe, no, actually, I think I was 32, and, and I was really finding my own in business. You know, so this was holding me back in my personal life, all right? Um, it was not holding me back in the work life. Um, I had not had any health consequences, but it was causing certain tension at home. And mm -hmm. I knew I drank too much, mm -hmm. all right? I knew perhaps that I probably couldn't stop drinking, but I didn't want to. It, it was my good friend until they told me, they told me that I needed to. They, the doctor, my parents, whoever, said, you know, you need to stop drinking. Were the people in the AA meetings you went to, were they being helpful or cooperative or were they giving you feedback to the way you were acting or were you able to pretty much go your own way while you were inside the room? I did my own own thing. Mm -hmm. I, I, I did not hang out early. I did not stick around late. I did not go to lunch. I did not go to dinner. I went to my meetings and I went home. And your sponsor, was your sponsor someone you talked to regularly or was it just sponsor name and occasional interaction with? We talked fairly regularly, uh -huh. and he took me to a number of different meetings around town. Yeah. But as time went by, that the frequency of our visits and, and conversations certainly waned. And, you know, I wasn't doing whatever it takes to stay sober. I was just doing, you know, whatever it takes at this period of time. And in my mind, I was doing enough to keep myself sober. One of the things that I hear and have heard a lot in the, in the interviews was, and it was true for me too. Actually quitting drinking like you did for a year becomes a handy excuse why you're not an alcoholic. Because if you can stop for a year, then you must be able to control your drinking. Did I, you get that sense? I absolutely believe that it was not a coincidence that I made it to a year and three days. Because I'm, I'm pretty sure I said to myself, okay, you stop for a year. Mm -hmm. Now you know what the deal is. Right. Um, you can control it. Hmm. All right. And so I went back into the world and tried to control my drinking. Mm -hmm. um, I do not recall the period of time, whether it was a year or two years, but my, my drinking started to aggravate my wife again. Mm -hmm. um, and I was drinking too much. I was drinking every day. Um, During the day it, or just in the evenings? Just in the evenings okay. after work. But, but I'd come home and, and have, you know, several drinks and you know, fall asleep in the chair and she'd have to wake me up to go to bed. And, you know, part of my story is marijuana. Yeah. Um, that was really my first drug of choice. Uh, and that started in 10th grade in high school. From that point on, I, I smoked every day. Um, and somewhere during college, I started drinking every day in, in addition mm. to smoking every day. I was the same way, as a matter of fact. My substance of choice was marijuana and I found it right after high school before I went to college and I was got high every single day and of course some of the people I was hanging out with for the pot were also drinking so I got involved in the drinking mm -hmm. even though I felt like I was sharper and um, a little bit more in control when I was smoking grass than when I was drinking mm -hmm. I still would oftentimes do both and uh, you know one thing kind of led you know led to the other. And if I couldn't drink, then I could smoke pot. If I couldn't smoke pot, then I would drink. But for the most part, I was able to get enough pot so I could smoke every day. Right. Is that your experience? Yes. I always had, there was always pot. Mm -hmm. uh, and if I ran out, I needed it. So don't let anybody <laughs> tell you pot wasn't addictive because I was certainly <laughs> addicted to it. What I found out somewhere along the way, and I don't know if it was in high school or in college, um, and, and don't tell this to the kids, right. but if I drank a little bit before I smoked, the high from the weed was more intense. So uh, I started drinking before I smoked. Uh, and that was in the evenings. Mm -hmm. I still smoked in the morning mm -hmm. and the like, but sure. after school, 
you know, I'd come home, I'd pour a drink, and I'd start drinking, um, and it was it was a cocktail or two, mm -hmm. um, small drinks, uh, and and then I'd smoke, and then we'd go out in college to the bars and drink all night, mm. come home, smoke, and start all over again the next yeah. day, and just do it day after day, right? Um, but some point along that journey, drinking was an everyday occurrence huh. um, in the evenings. Were you a blackout drinker? I was not. Um, I am certainly what they call a chronic versus a periodic. You know, it made me feel good. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, as people say, it it was the solution. The weed and the alcohol were the solution to make me <sighs> breathe easier, relax, yeah. unwind from the day. So when I got into the work world, I mean, that's what I... I wanted and I felt I needed at the end of every day uh -huh. to have that unwind period. All right. And the problem is when you start falling asleep in your chair and your wife has to wake you up to go to bed every night, it becomes a problem. For her. Right, for her, <laughs> not for you. Yeah. <laughs> right. Now, was she the only one noticing this as a problem? Were there others? How about your kids? What 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 was there? No, they were they were still real young. Okay. So after I got sober in 96, uh -huh. right after my wife found out she was pregnant. So we had our son in November of 96, our mm -hmm. second child. Mm -hmm. And I was clean and sober. My wife's mom had uh, leukemia and she died in early 96. And mm -hmm. my wife was very thankful that I got sober during that period mm -hmm. of time. So I was there, I was present when her mom passed away. And so she was very happy um, with the way things were going. I, on the other hand, still missed it. And, you know, consequently, a year later, you know, I started drinking again. Did it become self-evident at any point that you were doing this because she wanted you to do it, not because you wanted to do it? Absolutely. So it was 100% because she wanted it, not you. Correct. It's hard to keep up any kind of long-term commitment with that going on because sooner or later the other person will come to expect that you want the outcome that you're getting from not drinking. And they want to believe that you feel the way they believe. And when you don't, that's where the friction starts, isn't it? It is. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm certain that's why I didn't stay so. You know, if you fast forward to 2018, mm -hmm. I had every one of the bedevilments that mm. they talk about in the book, all right? Uh -huh. I didn't care if I woke up anymore every uh -huh. day. My life was miserable. Um, I was doing okay still. I had some business traumas yeah. um, along the way, which I, I had a hard time climbing out of that self-pity, and, and consequently I started drinking more and more. But I got to that point where, you know, I was a prey to misery and depression. I. I really did feel like I was sinking and there was no way out. So this period from the time you started drinking again after that year sober to 2018, we're talking 25 years, aren't we? So there, there was a, a period in the middle and, mm -hmm. um, you know, that merits discussion. So I came back into the program around 98-ish uh -huh. and I stayed sober. I worked all the steps. I got a new sponsor. Mm -hmm. Um, I hung out with a good group of people, and I was part of the fellowship. Um, I worked the steps to a degree, in mm -hmm. a sense. Uh, I did the fourth step. I did a ninth step. Not sure I did a good six and seven, mm. and I'm certain I didn't do a good one. <laughs> <laughs> um, still never really uh, understood the concept of a higher power. Um, and I tried to work the 12th step and work with another person, but I really didn't feel comfortable doing it because I'm not sure I knew how to work the program. Right. Um, and it seemed inconvenient. And so I gave up on that. The person didn't stay sober. I didn't seek other sponsees. Hmm. And I probably didn't have much to give them other yeah. than I now could say I'm part of the club. I've worked the steps. Um, it's evident that I didn't do a good step one because I was having some anxiety and sleeping issues. I went to a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. um, he had prescribed Ambien for sleeping, um, and I started taking Ambien on a daily basis. Um, 
And so about three years into it, I found that if you took a little extra Ambien, you could actually not go to sleep and stay up and, and feel like you were more productive. And I'd start writing emails and doing work that I totally didn't remember the next day. You know, that's kind of a, a side effect of Ambien that, that you can, uh, you know, forget what you were doing. So were you addicted to the Ambien? I'm, I'm pretty sure you could say I was addicted. So uh -huh. uh, my friends in the program uh, got together. We had a intervention, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, at my doctor's office. And, you know, they, they convinced me I was addicted uh, to Ambien mm -hmm. uh, and that I needed some help. Mm -hmm. And I checked into the treatment center for Ambien. Um, and they detoxed me for for a little less than a week, I think it was. Hmm. And um, I went to their IOP program and came out clean from Ambien. The reason, to back up, the reason I, they had the uh, intervention mm -hmm. on the Ambien, because one night after taking a little extra Ambien, mm -hmm. a buddy came over to my house and I decided we should go out uh, to a club and I had a beer that night. And I told everybody, look, I had a beer. I was taking too much Ambien. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's what precipitated me going into treatment for that. You know, we qualified it as a relapse. Um, and this and was after how long? Probably about three years or so. Okay, so from 98 to 2001? 2001-ish, yeah. 2001. So in that period of time, you were actively participating in AA? Yes, I was going to meetings, going to dinners after, hanging out at Starbucks with program guys. And how was your confidence level, your belief level at that time? Were you still feeling resistant to it or feeling like you hadn't really gotten the first step? Or were you still trying to manage your life? I, I didn't know I hadn't gotten the first step at that period of time. I felt like I was working the program uh -huh. adequately. Okay. What I can tell you in retrospect is there was really no higher power interaction yeah. uh, at that point in time. Uh, and there still was, you know, man, you know, I wish I could still be drinking. But I had been feeling good about the program sure. and, and feeling good about myself that I was now in the deal for several years. Yeah. And, you know, I was proud to be part of AA. But that powerless thing, uh, you know, I. Took, I had some knee pain, so I was taking a little Vicodin here and there. Um, probably not taking it as prescribed, mm -hmm. but I wasn't seeking out other prescriptions. And this is after? This was kind of during that ambient okay. period. When they said that you needed to consider that a relapse, did you literally come back in as a, to get a new I picked chip. up another desire I chip. I picked up another desire chip in 2001? About 2001. 2001. So you'd stayed sober for three years, but you were dabbling in the different prescription drugs during that time. Towards the end of that period, about two years into it, uh -huh. uh, when I had some knee surgery, you know, I was taking some painkillers, yeah. but I wasn't drinking. So as far as I was concerned, I was working the program, Yeah, you know. And the Ambien and take a little extra Ambien, still work in the program. Did anybody ever confront you on that? I mean, before the intervention or during that period of time, the people who knew you best? They didn't know. Um, you know, my business partner who was in the program at that time, right. he kind of started seeing about the Ambien thing mm. because I'd be falling asleep while we were working late night right, right. at the house. And, you know, occasionally he'd... he'd Recognized that I couldn't remember some shit. Mm -hmm. okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, brother. And so then, you know, I was outed with, with the beer. Mm -hmm. You know, when I went out that one night and had a beer. Um, pretty much came clean with that. And, and I agreed I needed to re-up re the game. So we started over. And I stayed sober for about four and a half years after that. Okay, uh, so from 2001 to about 2005, you're sober once again. Yeah, 2005, 2006. I'm not exactly sure of the date. Now, were you continuing to use the same sponsor and going to the same meetings, or had you yes. changed that up? No, it was all the same meetings, uh, a lot of which we still go to today. Uh -huh. You know, I was, I was ingrained in the program. Um, 
did not pick up a sponsee. This was the period when I had a sponsee, when I tried to have a sponsee right, in right. this second go-round okay. period. Uh -huh. But I was not reworking the steps. I wasn't doing a daily inventory. Yeah, but I was in the program. So you were selective about the various things that we do to enrich our lives with sobriety versus just staying dry or just staying sober without any of the gifts. You were going to the meetings. You were trying to sponsor somebody, right? Right. I, uh, you had a sponsor. Were you calling your sponsor very frequently? Yeah, we stayed in touch. We went to meetings together. We went to coffees. Um, at one point, I hired my sponsor, and oh, he was cool. working for me for a while. How'd that work out? Uh, it ended up not so good. Uh, we got we got crossways on uh, on a transaction, and uh, he left, and we didn't talk much after that. That's tough. You know, which is certainly a good lesson to learn. You know, yeah. to to be in a a position of authority over your sponsor is probably not a great relationship. I get that. So I'm curious about what you were feeling deep down in your heart of hearts during this, what, third attempt at longer term sobriety, the four and a half years. What were you feeling deep down about what you were doing? Were you satisfied from a emotional or spiritual standpoint? Or was there still something in there that you just could not bring yourself to do or feel or, or, or experience? I was feeling satisfied emotionally. Uh -huh. I, I really felt like I was on a good beam, okay. if you will. Uh -huh. um, in retrospect, I can see how my ego, as things were going well, mm. and now that I'm doing all the right things, mm -hmm. my ego started to get enormous. Um, and with that, you know, my selfishness or my grandiosity or you know, I felt I was giving, I was giving people some jobs, I was helping people, mm -hmm. I was, and this charitability was service. Yeah, yeah. But was I doing good for nothing in return? Not so much. Huh. So I, I really was feeling my Wheaties towards the end of this four to five year period. If you, knowing what you know today, were to meet the Brent at that period, and you noticed what was going on with him, what would you say to that guy? Um, you're not the king of the world. Uh-huh. Was that coming out at that time, that you exuding that as the kind of personality you wanted to put out in front of people? I, I was the smartest person in the room. Really? Even in an AA room? This is probably more in my day-to-day -day life. Oh, now, okay. in an yeah. AA room, mm -hmm. I was the smartest person in the room, but not the most wise as relates to the program. I knew that. Right. I knew there were people that had more wisdom mm -hmm. about staying sober and about spirituality and the like. But I, I was still smarter than anybody, what I'll call in real life. Yeah. I don't know if that's the case. No, I get that. Was it a smugness? No, it was just an overconfidence. Overconfidence, okay. Which caused a, a rift between me and my AA business partner, protege, uh, because I wasn't willing to to listen to another point of view. Interesting. You know. How were things at home during this four year, four and a half year period? They, they were good. The ambient years caused an issue. My wife, of course, was nervous and scared again that I had relapsed. But, you know, I bounced back pretty well deep into the program. And, you know, we had, I think my 35th birthday, I guess this was early on, um, was all AA people. Yeah, yeah. You know, my family and AA people. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, and we were enmeshed yeah. in the herd, so to speak. Uh -huh. um, but there was no connection with the higher power. There was no spirituality. I was still under the belief, you know, if, if I made enough money and was able to relax on the business growth, then I would have time, you know, to study spirituality I and becomes more spiritual mm. and to have a higher concept of a higher power. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying listening to AA Recovery interviews, check out my big book podcast, the complete unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth edition. It's a quick and easy way to hear the big book wherever you are, whenever you want. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. 
or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition big book wearing headphones. And we're back. So sobriety didn't have the priority that we that it really should have in a person's life. You were putting other things in front of them as justification or as, let's say, delaying factors to getting to the real meat of the program at some later point. It really, that really just changed, you know, over time. So yeah. when I got back into the program, mm -hmm. sobriety was number one because yeah. it's ingrained in us. You know, yeah. you must be sober first for everything to follow. All right. And, you know, once I got to that third year and fourth year, it's like, well, my powerlessness waned mm. as I became more powerful. So the priority of sobriety was, it's a given, all right? Mm -hmm. You know, you can't drink, you can't, right. you can't smoke anymore. Right. But that's not, and we're gonna still go to our meetings, but that's not gonna be number one. And, and that became evident as my daily meetings turned to three times a week meetings, uh -huh. turned to just Saturday morning, and you could see the progression that everybody has. Stop calling my sponsor. How long of a period was that? At what point did you notice yourself letting up on any particular facet of your program? Probably two or three years into it. Probably when my sponsor and I split, I stopped going to as many meetings. But there, I mean, there were still, you know, a frequency of meetings, but it did towards the end. It certainly fell off to, to one meeting a week. Would you say that then from what your experience was that the importance of meetings was never overstated? No, I think meetings are important for lots of reasons. Number one, as you start reducing your meeting, you just hear over and over and over. As you start reducing your meeting account, you become in more danger. And, and when anybody who relapses, you ask them what, what went wrong. Well, I stopped going to meetings, stopped calling my sponsor, stopped reading the big book. So I, I think having a, a solid meeting schedule is critical to staying sober. So what year are we at now? Probably 2005-ish. 2005-ish. You've just completely let up on the program to the extent of fewer meetings. Were you... I was still hanging with program people. Yeah. Were they starting uh, to notice a difference in Brent as a participating brother in the program? Or were you able to keep it up, keep those friendships up as if you were actively engaged all the time? I don't know uh -huh. if they noticed. I, I will tell you, towards that period of time, 2005, 2006, mm -hmm. the way I relapsed uh, was I was out hunting with mm -hmm. some old buddies. Yeah. And they had passed some weed around the campfire. And I took a heat of some weed. Mm. I felt like I was missing out. Mm. You know, weed was becoming a little more passe. Yeah. And, and so I started smoking. And a week later, I had asked my buddy, hey, can you get me some of that? Mm -hmm. And very quickly, I was back to smoking on a daily basis. Mm. Now, my AA buddies knew that I was smoking, and I was still coming to meetings, having had smoked. Mm. Um, my argument was that the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. And I was not drinking. Well, the desire to stop, it doesn't necessarily mean you have stopped. One of the women I interviewed early on in the podcast series, she was going to AA meetings for like five years, was drinking after the meetings, hmm. but she wanted to stop. But it took until the point at which she finally did, the desire to stop was there. So you right. found a way to justify or rationalize it. That, right? That's exactly the case. I was like, look, I don't want to drink anymore. I get it. Alcohol was a problem for yeah. me. All right, but this weed is a whole different animal. Yeah. Yeah, it changes the way I feel, but, you know, there's no negative consequences from it, other than my wife was now getting aggravated about it, too. My, all my buddies in AA didn't want to play with me anymore because I was not sober. And, you know, basically it was like my group, my sober group, kind of dissolved. Did they feel let down, or did you get the sense from them that they were... Oh, yeah. They, they had an intervention. They had a pot intervention a pot for me intervention. at my house. The same guys from the previous intervention, a or a few? A couple were the same guys. Oh, a couple was my business partner. <laughs> a, a couple heavy hitters. Uh-huh. And 
I was appalled that they'd get together at my house, you know, to have an intervention for pot because nobody has an intervention for pot. It's like, you know, what are y'all thinking? Yeah, it's so benign. Right. right. Nobody, why would you do that? And so I got up, I walked out. Oh, uh, you walked out of your own intervention? I did. Huh. For the weed. And keep in mind, my ego is... Sky high. The top of the level. Right. It's like, y'all don't know what you're doing. Yeah. Y'all are being stupid. I got this under control. Um, and so my involvement in the program uh, pretty much disintegrated. And the pot got in the way of my business partnership, um, where in a sense we got divorced. Right. Not my wife, my business partner. Business partner. And um, very shortly after that, my wife said we need to get a divorce. Mm. Um, so we were separated for four months. I was pretty miserable during that time. Mm -hmm. I, I did not drink for, for at least a year after all this went down. I, I stayed dry from alcohol. Yeah. I was smoking weed, but I was committed. Hey man, I'm, I'm not going to drink. I know that's bad. And, and so my wife and I were separated. I was very miserable, lonely. Our kids were six and hmm. whatever age. And, you know, they'd come over and visit for a few hours. We, one day we went to an Astros game, and, and all I could do was sit there and cry that I, I didn't have my family anymore. So you were living elsewhere. Yeah, I went to an apartment for four months. And, you know, I begged her to come back. I'll do better. Mm -hmm. All right, I'm not drinking. And the saint that she is, she saw how miserable I was and let me come back in. But you never said to her, I won't smoke pot? I may have told her I'll, I'll try to do better. Okay, I but get it. I don't think there was a hard and fast. I got to stop. Yeah. So you didn't want to stop at that point. I didn't really want to stop. I just wanted my family back. Okay. So the family comes back. The family comes back at four months. Uh, I continue to smoke pot till about two thousand and eight. Uh huh. And uh, somewhere in the two thousand six to two thousand eight, I started drinking again. Huh. Uh, so I didn't have any program. I now wasn't going to any meetings. So it was just a natural progression at that point. Absolutely. Your wife threw you out, and then you came back after four months. But your program was dissolving around you because you wanted to smoke pot uh, and wanted acceptance in the rooms from people that you were sober, even though you were smoking pot. And there are some rooms out there where people will do that. I get it. but. Mm -hmm. I've known men who've come into this very meeting room that we're in tonight who tried to convince the group when they would share that it was okay for them to smoke pot. They had some kind of special dispensation. And it's not so much that people were ragging on them or saying negative things in the meeting or whatever. It's just that the atmosphere of the entire fellowship shifted for that person. Because a lot of us who are also pot smokers who consider sobriety, meaning all the different substances. It's hard to sit there and watch a guy who's still doing the substance that, that you want to do, but no, you can't do, but it's okay for him. There's just something that doesn't feel right about it. Did it, you get that sense? I, I did. And Dan, in fact, was the one that took me aside um, and said, I, I can't hang out with you anymore. Um, he said, if you're smoking pot, it is it's dangerous to my program, mm -hmm. all right? Yeah. You're a danger to me. If I see you getting along and going to meetings, smoking pot, and everything's hunky-dory, I might in my mind think that I can do that too. Yeah, why well, can Brent do it and I can't? Right, and so he says, I cannot, I can't be with you. I can't condone it. I, I don't want to see that. Yeah, I could hear Dan saying that too, the right. type of sobriety that he has. Right. So you started drinking again. I did. In about 2000, 2006 to 2008 period. Right. 2006 or so, I started drinking again. Uh -huh. um, 2008, because my business relationship had, had gotten uh, tumultuous, mm -hmm. I started having some serious anxiety. Um, and when I smoked, I think the weed might have been getting stronger too, I started having these panic attacks. Um, and so... At some point in there, I stopped smoking pot. It, mm. it was tripping me out. It, it you know, before it, it was always a measured response. 
Yeah. It worked the same way every time, mm -hmm. but it stopped working for me. Hmm. And, and it, it made me scared because some days I would have a bad reaction to it. And some days it's okay, but I, I never knew how it, it was going to work. Did you ever try to use the alcohol to counteract the anxiety uh, that you were having or the panic attacks that were being caused, let's say, by the pot? Yeah, that my drinking increased because of that. So your drinking increased to get through to, the panic. Right. Absolutely. And so at, at some point I said, look, I can't smoke anymore. This is not working anymore for me. But drinking is now my good buddy again. I get it. And, and, and that's, that works every time the same way every time. So from 2006 or seven, yeah. I drank all the way till 2018. Wow. That whole time. Yeah. So I was out about 13 years. This is, these are parts of your story I've, I've, I've never heard, but it's amazing how, how much exposure you had and how much participation you had in AA to be out for that period of time. What, what were you thinking about AA? Did you ever think about AA when you were going through that period? No, after, I did not look back after Did you not want to have anything to do with it or, or you were done with AA or? You know, I tried it, didn't work, didn't make me feel better. Uh -huh. At least I, I didn't remember that it made me feel better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I could not remember the benefits of it. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's, it, it's strange. So I feel bad for folks who are forced into the program um, or come in because their parents, their wife, their loved ones tell them to come in, mm. young people who are there you know, or come here from DWIs, the judge sent them the there. Judge sent them, yeah. um, I feel that's the way I was. You know, they talk about hitting your bottom. All right, I had no idea what, what that meant. Um, I thought my bottom was my daughter crying in the bed next to me. So I see how hard it can be for newcomers who have not got to that point of desperation yet. Mm. I was not at a point of desperation. Was it because you hadn't lost enough or your health was still good or? It, it was all of those things. I, uh -huh. I, I was not in any pain other than some emotional pain. But in 2018, I didn't want to go anywhere. I just wanted to sit in my backyard um, and smoke and drink. You were back to smoking pot at that point? For a few months, I started smoking pot in the middle of 2018. Okay. Uh, again, it, it, it worked for a little bit mm. and then it started waffling on me so it was not really my go-to again it, it was it was a supplement but alcohol was you know daily lots of alcohol yeah um, I was now waking up in the middle of the night three in the morning having to go to the kitchen take a couple chugs out of the bottle to go back to bed I didn't want to go into work uh -huh. anxiety and depression and self-pity were all on me it was thick um, and, and I was really starting to get some serious panic attacks where my face would flush. People from work would call or I'd get a voicemail and I would just start sweating. I didn't want to be available for anybody. Uh -huh. I didn't want you to tell me to do something because I just didn't want to go out into the world. Hmm. Um, I would set all my appointments up for Thursday afternoon between 1 and 3 o'clock. All the appointments for the week. If you called me on a Monday... I'm too busy till Thursday. I had a woman that I recently interviewed tell me that her anxiety and the panic attacks that she had from similar types of situations that you're talking about created uh, agoraphobia for her, where mm -hmm. she just didn't want to be around people at all. It was close to that. Was it? It was close to that. You know, we'd make plans to go out to dinner with people. And the night of, and I had full intention. Yeah, that sounds fun. Let's get out. Let's mm -hmm. go. You know, I could go drink there. It'd be all right. But the night of the deal, man, eh, I don't want to go. I just want to stay home in my backyard. I don't want anybody screwing with me. Well, you know what's interesting about your story, Brent, is that there was a period in time where your wife's desire to have you stop was sufficient for you to stop and go to AA. And, and you had a relationship that supported that particular premise, that you would go and she would stop being concerned or nagging or whatever she did. What was her demeanor like during all of these years? Or was she too busy raising the kids? Did she ever get on you again to stop? Sure, it, it varied. Mm. Um, you know, there'd be some pressure and then I'd play it off. Mm -hmm. um, and tell her, I'm, I'm 
I understand. I'm working on it. I'll mm -hmm. try to drink a little less. And, you know, I got away with that for 13 years or so. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for the last year or two, you know, 2016 to 18, she was really miserable with mm -hmm. my drinking. Mm -hmm. um, it was palpable. You know, I'd, I'd come to bed with a, a drink in my hand with the ice clinking in the glass. Mm -hmm. um, she would be dead asleep, you know, at 10 o'clock. I'd be coming in at midnight or something. Mm -hmm. She'd hear that ice clinking, wake straight up. You know, what are you having another drink for? Why do you need another drink? I don't need another drink. I want another drink. Want another drink, yeah. Right? Yeah. And I'd put it next to my bed, and I'd get in bed and watch TV for a little bit. I'd wake up the next morning, and that full drink was sitting next to me. So she went to bed aggravated many nights. Um, she would check the bottle every morning mm. to see how much I drank the night before. Mm -hmm. and, and this is part of her story, because she's, she's devoted to Al-Anon now. So she's a devoted member of Al-Anon. Yeah. Did she go into Al-Anon before you got sober again? Um, no. She had gone down on many years prior Yeah. for about three meetings and bought the books, put them on the shelf, and, and never really went back. But when I went into treatment in 18, um, she went to her first Al-Anon meeting again and has gone every day since. So she's become a regular. Yeah. You know what's ironic about that, Brent, is that she becomes a regular after you get sober, where for, for a lot of Al-Anons, and I, I was in Al-Anon for a period of time, a number of years ago, uh, the time it's most important, or not least important, let's say, is when the person is still engaging in the behavior and you're trying to survive it, and Al-Anon is teaching you the skills to survive the active alcoholic out there. So while you're out there drinking everything, she leaves the book on the shelf, you get sober, she gets involved. It's actually a beautiful story, but I'm sure she must have been miserable for a lot of years she, in there. She was, and you could feel it. Yeah. Um, and, and it wasn't gonna end well. So were the kids grown by this point, by 2018? Yeah, so I was um, you know, drinking during their high school years, pretty much. Yeah. And and before that, mm -hmm. but but they really knew I was an alcoholic when they were in high school. They understood, you know. They understood when we went on vacations. Dad says, "I got to stop at the liquor store before we go to the hotel." You know. Yeah. And I'd feel bad if it was a four-day vacation that after two days, I'd have to leave them and go to the liquor store again. Yeah. To resupply. How many kids have you got? I've got two. Two. Twenty-seven and. 25. Uh, are either one of them involved with any kind of substance abuse or alcoholism that you know of? Um, they do some social drinking yeah. and some social smoking yeah. Yeah. Um, these days. So. Yeah, I get that. I've got the same kind of thing with my three, and my daughter doesn't drink or smoke or anything. My two sons, 31 and 29, Every time I see them order a drink when we go out to dinner, it's like I want to say, wait a second, but then I have to remember, wait, they're not the alcoholic at the table here. They're ordering one drink, and that's all they want. Right. And it, but it's hard not to want to project onto them, you know, just that fear of them turning into what I was for all those years. Oh man, it's it's hard. Did, did you ever get that sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. How do you how do you deal with that when you feel that way? You know, for a while, it was like, hey man, let me let me tell you all the pitfalls. You know all the bad things that, yeah, that happened yeah. to me. You know, perhaps this isn't a good plan. Um, but but somebody told me that look, how would you have taken it? <laughs> I know. You know, when you were drinking yeah, and, I know. and starting to smoke. I know. And certainly whatever anybody said to me when I started smoking weed uh, or drinking, I, yeah. I wasn't listening to. Yeah, I'm the same way. Uh, and, and plus the days and the opportunities to have said something that might have had a little bit more impact kind of came and went. Right. The best, the best that I can do for my kids is stay sober and be a model of a sober man and a sober dad and a sober person in the community. That's exactly right. The, you know, advice I got was, um, you know, back off on telling them what to do. That's right. certainly good Al-Anon advice. Mm -hmm. um, but let them know if they think they're having a problem that you're a resource for them, yeah. you know, to talk to. So uh, 2018, you come back. Mm. Things have really ramped up in terms of the anxiety and the drinking and 
the business difficulties? All, was all right. that kind of coming to a head at, in 2018? Uh, it, it came to a head in about 2013. Wow, so you spent five years in that quagmire? Yeah, it, it, got, pro it got progressively worse. Huh. Sad, self-pity, couldn't dig myself out of a hole starting in 2013. And by 2018, I could see no way out. I, I didn't even, I, I assumed there was no way out. Mm. It was never going to get better again. Um, and, and all I wanted to do was, um, uh, you know, ease the pain. Mm. Yeah, I've known people who've contemplated suicide. I didn't contemplate suicide, but I really was okay if I didn't wake up the next day. Yeah, I get it. You know, just kind of a passive way of <laughs> getting exactly getting the same. This, I mean, maybe that's scenario. the answer. If I just don't wake up, you know, it, it'll be okay. I've got life insurance. Yeah. Everybody will be okay with that. So, did you have some kind of spiritual experience before you came back in in 2018? Was there a particular moment of clarity for you before you finally said? I got to get back into AA. I got to stay sober. I got to do this. A couple of events uh -huh. that precipitated it. Well, my dad passed away in early 2018. Um, so there was a little grief process there. <laughs> I say that like it's a minimal event. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't think that was traumatic, you know, serious trauma. He was 92 years old. Yeah, yeah. Um, certainly I was sad. But a few months after that, my psychiatrist of about six years killed himself, Ooh. right? And, and he was the guy treating me for my anxiety oh, gee. and my panic. And by the way, I was back on Ambien. I was on Clonopin. I was on Trazodone. I was on Speed in the morning to wake me up, all right, with Clonopin on the side to and limit booze, my anxiety. And booze in between. And, and booze in between. Oh. I, I drank a ton at night, uh -huh. taking Ambien, taking Trazodone to go to sleep. Needless to say, he was not an addiction specialist. <laughs> he passed away, and, and that was really a catalyst for me starting to crack up. Kind of uh, like a wake-up call? or Well, kind of like I didn't have anybody now to, to talk to. Okay. My wife is mad at me because I'm drinking all the time. Right. I didn't have anywhere to go. Mm, that's tough. You know, I had to... I didn't find out about his passing and... Uh, until I called to make an appointment. They said, oh, by the way, we, let me have somebody else talk to you. Oh, no. What <laughs> okay. a way to find out. And, and so I tried to see another doctor. That guy said, well, you know, you probably ought to stop drinking. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, but I don't want to go to AA. I've tried that. Yeah, yeah. He said, well, there's this thing called smart recovery. And I'm yeah. like, ah, that doesn't sound like it's for me either. And so I, I didn't get a good vibe yeah. from him. And... So a month or so went by, and I called a, a friend of ours in the program who's uh, connected to the recovery community. Mm -hmm. I said, look, I need a new psychiatrist. And he gave me the name of a doctor. I called her on the phone. He gave me the number. Mm -hmm. She said, all right, what medicines are you on? I said, I'm on Clonopin, <laughs> Trazodone, Ambien. She's like, oh, wait, I can't see you until you're off all of that. So I called my buddy back. Uh, and by the way, when I called him the first time, I was crying. I said, look, man, I'm miserable. I'm in a bad place. Yeah, yeah. I need a new shrink. I'm cracking up. Um, he, he referred to me as a hot mess yeah, when I talked I can to imagine. him. So that doctor said she wouldn't see me unless I was uh, got to a baseline, mm. free and clear of drugs. And so I, I reported back to him. He helped me get an appointment over at the treatment center. So back to the same treatment center you'd gone to 14 years earlier. Right. And, you know, I checked in. I, I checked in with a gym bag and mm -hmm. a couple T-shirts, figuring I'd be up there to detox. And then I'd walk out and I'd just come back into AA and y'all yeah. would uh, welcome me with open arms and I would, I would do the program. And we had a meeting there about four days into my stay there with my wife and mm -hmm. two doctors, my counselor, our buddy from the program. And I told them, you know, my plan was I'm going to finish detox and I'm going to leave. And mm -hmm. they said, well, that's not our recommended plan for you. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> um, and so they said, look, you, you got to have just a little willingness. Yeah. Think about it. Be willing to stay. Our plan is residential treatment and, and the other programs yeah. thereafter uh -huh. and aftercare. And, and so I left that meeting, you know, adamant that I wasn't gonna stay and they had a little group process group 
that morning after the meeting or the next morning after the meeting. And I showed up to that men's group and one of our other buddies from the program was leading that meeting. Mm -hmm. And I had known him outside the program. Our kids went to school together. I wow. never knew he was in the program. Huh. And I saw him there and I said, man, they want me to stay here. He said, I don't want to stay here. And he turned to me and said, man, you got to stay. It's not going to work if you don't stay. And so that was my first kind of God moment that he put that man in my life right then. And, and I stayed. And, um, it made a hell of a difference. I mean, um, you know, it, I got to go through all the different emotions during that next few weeks. Um, not the least of which was I am totally different than all these people, all these youngsters <laughs> doing heroin, I'm, you know, shit like that. It's like, I am not like any of these people. Yeah. Um, and after a few weeks, it's like, I am exactly like these people. We all got the same shit. You learn some, some of the science behind addiction yeah, and things sure. like that. You get back into the swing of, of the program, but, um, you know, hitting that bottom and hearing about everybody else's bottom and learning about, you know, what the real first step is all about, mm -hmm. about being powerless. Because people came in and we talked yeah. and uh -huh. we had meetings in there. And I, I really kind of felt the first step for the first time. And, and I realized I, I never got it before. Your emotion at the, in the moment right now is an indication of just how powerful it must have been at the time oh, yeah. when, when you recognize that that man was a godsend. Did that moment of clarity, that God moment with him, it sounds like it changed your entire frame of mind towards everything else. It, it did. You, you, you've heard me say in a meeting, uh -huh. our buddy who recommended I go there uh -huh. met me when I was up in detox. Huh. And I had told him, look, man, I never got the God thing. And it, he pointed me to the page in the book yeah. where it said you have to make a decision whether God is everything or else he's, he's nothing. nothing. And I, I said, well, up to this point, you know, God's done nothing for me. And he turned right to me and said, how's that been working for you? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, well, if we can put it that way, it hasn't been working so good. He said, you know, perhaps you should be willing to consider that maybe God's everything. And then two days later, I had that God moment. It's like, well, God. Maybe maybe there is something out there working for me. So it was really powerful. It sounds like it. And it was the thing that finally moved you off the dime to be able to do the work. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was really ready to dig back in. And it's funny that I went on past like two or three weeks mm -hmm. in into my stay there. Uh, and I showed up to this meeting. Yeah, I remember. And you were there and you said, ask me if I had a sponsor. Yeah. I was like, no, not yet. I'm I'm looking. You said, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> you called my guy over and said, hey, this be a good sponsor. Yeah. And, and he's still my sponsor today. Yeah. And, that's, that's so and, beautiful. And, and that was kind of a God thing, too, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, it definitely is for me. And I know it was for him. And he is an amazing man. And I've seen the quality of his sobriety grow and improve since being your sponsor. And I've seen you as I've never seen you before, your participation in the fact that you seem to be like right in the middle now. Absolutely. I'm seeing you at meetings. You're not hesitating to go out to eat afterwards. You're very amenable to whatever the group is doing and you, you do service work for the groups and you, you're at a meeting virtually almost every day, I guess. Huh? Absolutely. And your sponsor is, he's become that kind of man too. So it's been able, I've been able to see both of you grow in that way. Absolutely. So you've been here for the last three plus years. And, you know, typically what I do is I take people back and we talk about what it was, you know, what it was like, what happened and certainly what it's like now. You're what it's like now, in other words, from today back to the point at which you finally came back into AA for, let's hope, the, the final desire chip. How do you feel about the overall state of your sobriety right now, given what you've done in the past three years? My sobriety is, is pretty solid, I think. Mm -hmm. You know, I always feel like I can enhance my conscious contact with the higher power. Yeah. It, you know, I did a little New Year's resolution thing with some of the people I work with and, mm -hmm. you know, and in, in process groups. Mm -hmm. uh, and at the end of the year, I said, all right, you know, what's one thing you can enhance in your life and, and what's one thing that you can enhance in your program. Um, and for me, my program was 
need to stick with the daily meditations. I need to enhance my meditation and my prayer. You know, if 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 I can improve on anything, it, it's really a conscious contact throughout the day yeah. with my higher power, not just five minutes in the morning with some prayers, um, but spending more time in that daily meditation yeah. um, and enhancing that that contact. So, because I don't know about you, but from time to time, I I wax and wane on. on you know, is everything going to be okay? Is my higher power got my back? Is it going to turn out the yeah. way it's supposed to turn yeah. out? And am I okay with the way it's going to turn out? Because I'm still always wanting that result to be my way. Well, in looking back, I've yet to find any occurrence in my life, going back all the years, where God has not been part of the equation or the solution. Mm. And so his box score, whatever you want to call it, is 100%. Right. And yet going into the next thing that might require the letting go to God, I still think it's not going to work out. It's like you've won every single race you've ever run, right. and yet you're still going into the next one thinking you're going to lose. My biggest challenge spiritually is to be able to stop during the day at any point and just acknowledge, okay, God, you got this. If I get off the phone with somebody and it's been a particularly enriching call, the very first thing I say is, thank you, God. I say that after every interview. Before I go in, I say, put the words in my mouth and in my mind and let my heart direct those words. Yes. Because you notice I don't have any script. There's no scripting here. Right. This is all about heart to heart. The thing I love about your sobriety and watching you stay sober is that there is a marked difference between you now and you then. Mm and it's it's a real joy to see it now you're sponsoring some guys right now aren't yeah, you I've how many a handful of guys a handful of guys what's that been like for you oh it's been fabulous yeah it's uh you know working with others is the real buzz the real buzz in wow. the program and it is i mean it's what keeps the momentum alive in the program yeah. uh it, it's what keeps me going back through the steps um, I, I did not do that well in my go-rounds, not that it would have made a difference, I think, right. but it is a requirement. We have to work with others yeah. uh, in order to keep the program fresh. It's what fills the hole in your soul. That, that's really what makes you feel good. Not just staying sober doesn't make you feel good, but working, being a helpful, useful member to my wife, yeah. to others in the program, that's the stuff I didn't get before. It's about enriching our lives through that process. Right. and. What you've talked about on this episode is the things that were missing before have been found in this period of sobriety for you, yeah. especially the service work, the sponsoring, being of service to other people. And you can always tell the quality of a man's sobriety by looking at the guys he sponsors mm -hmm. and by the guys those guys sponsor. And I know some of the guys you sponsor, and they are really comparing how they were when they came in to how they are today. It's amazing. You can see the light in their eyes. Yeah, uh, they're all doing great. Along the lines of what you just said, w one of the biggest differences that I think is the big book. You know, when I read the big book my first two times, mm -hmm. I had no idea what it was saying. Mm. I really didn't connect with it at all. Sure. Un until I got to that place of desperation. And then when I read it, it was like, yeah, man, that's how I felt. That's how I feel. Yeah. Um, so I really was able to, to relate and connect uh, with the big book this time. And that makes a difference when you're working with a sponsee. Mm -hmm. um, because you read it again and again and again. And, and how can you explain what some of it means to a new guy if you don't feel it or understand it yourself? Yeah. Um, and, and this time, I got it. You know, yeah. back. In previous go-rounds, it was like, this is an antiquated language. I have yeah, no idea what yeah. this guy's talking about. You know, a car dealer putting milk in his whiskey. <laughs> I mean, what does this have to do with me? Yeah, yeah, but yeah. the insanity of that guy's thinking before he did it, I felt that way. And yeah. I get it now. It's like uh, Chuck C's new pair of glasses. And I find that whenever I read the big book, and, you know, I've done the, the Big Book podcast, and yeah. part of that, in, the most interesting part of that was getting to go through the stories that never made it into the third and fourth editions, because a lot of those stories involved men 
and women who were contemporaries of Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob. And these were stories about people who got sober back then. And those are some really antiquated stories, but the power behind them is as fresh as today. Mm -hmm. it's, just, it's just amazing to know that the people whose guidance we are following had at most when they wrote that book three or four years blows my mind. Right. So it, it, to me, it's, it's one of God's greatest gifts to mankind. Absolutely. Without a doubt. Well, you know, this has really been terrific, just spending some time with you tonight and hearing your story and seeing the gifts. I'm assuming these gifts are carrying over into your personal relationships at home Absolutely. and at work. Yeah. Um, my wife are, and I are better than ever. Oh, that's great. Um, we go to chapter nine meetings together. Oh, great. And, you know, whereas we were two ships that pass in the night before, we, we are on the same team again, working towards a common goal. Oh, that's cool. Personal recovery for both of us. I get it. And we're doing better. Well, I'm so glad that that's worked out for you. And uh, I'm glad that you were able to do this. And uh, I just want to say I love you. You're a good man. And it means a lot to me that you would do this. Somewhere, someplace, there's somebody who may hear this and it may make a difference in their life. The value of even doing this is if one person can be helped, our job is done. That, that would be a great gift. Pretty much so. And I appreciate you still being around, man. Yeah, well, I Glad am. you're still here. I'm, I'm still here. And again, many thanks, Brent. I thought it was been... my pleasure, man. I'm yeah. glad we did it. I am too. Well, my friends, that's all for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Brent F., for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you help me spread the word by sharing it with your fellow AAs? In fact, tell five people and ask them to tell five people. As the number of listeners grows, this podcast will be of greater help to more and more alcoholics worldwide. Of course, you can listen to all of the interviews on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to listen to every interview, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's traditions and all General Service Office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.